Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today we get to hear from my newest friend, uh, Z Clark, who when we started our conversation, she told me that she went to elementary school with a woman named Netta, spelled exactly the same way. So we were meant to be friends. This is just the beginning of a, of a beautiful friendship. I'm so looking forward to you guys hearing from Z. The work that she is doing is having a profound impact in the world, and it's something that we can all be learning about to transform ourselves, but also how she started this, how she went from where she started to where she is now, I think will be a really interesting story for you guys to listen to. Z, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm excited to have you. So tell us, tell our audience a little bit about the work that you're doing right now, and then we'll kind of back up into how you got here. Sounds great. Well, my name is Z Clark. I'm the author of Black People Breathe. And today I teach mindfulness and breath work for Black people and all people of color to heal from racism in the workplace and in life. Okay. So we have a very clear understanding of the practical ways that you do that. So mm. you go into companies, but you also work with individuals, correct? 
Yes, exactly. So I work with companies, particularly their employee resource group. So the Black Employee Resource Group, the Latinx Employee Resource Group. And I offer trainings particularly tailored to the challenges that we face in the workplace. For example, I have a workshop called Mindfulness to Heal from Microaggressions at Work or Countering Imposter Syndrome or Mindfulness and Self-Care or things like how do you build up the confidence to ask for a promotion, a raise, et cetera. We face specific challenges that others don't face, and mindfulness and breathwork can be very powerful. So at companies, I work with companies to train their black and brown employees. I also work with individuals. That's a little bit more newer to my practice recently. So I have a course coming out called Breathing Through Microaggressions and Racism, an online self-paced course. I also offer monthly virtual restorative sound baths for instant stress relief. You offer so much. <laughs> I have to go back to your history. You can't know mm. what you know without having experienced mm. what you experienced. So tell us a little yes. bit about what you experienced. And just so our audience knows, you are a Harvard MBA, like corporate startup, Silicon Valley culture kind of person. Like that's where you come from. So Let's just start there, like all the things yeah. you had to unpack for yourself so that you could get to this teaching place now. I spent over 20 years working in corporate America. I started my career in financial services in New York City, Citigroup, Amex. I went back to Harvard for business school. And then I moved to the Bay Area where I was a management consultant at Bain. And then I worked in tech. I worked at big companies like Yahoo. I worked at smaller startups, everything in between. And during that whole time, I would be the only. I mean, mm. The only woman in the room, tech can be very male-dominated, but also almost always the only Black person and Black woman. And that came with a number of challenges, particularly around microaggressions. I would be new at a job and a complete stranger would come up to me and say, hey, are you the new diversity hire? Or while I'm at the company, people would make comments that questioned my competence. Oh, well, where's the backup data for that thing that you did? Or are you sure your work is right? Just constantly questioning whether I am, you know, a worthy person of being there. And so I felt like I constantly had to prove myself, prove my worth. And ultimately, that led to burnout because I was working nights, I was working weekends, and that affected my mental health, low self-esteem, anxiety, depression, but also my physical health, right? And that's when I started to actually take it seriously when my doctor said, Something has got to change around your stress levels. And that's how I got to India. I was like, I'm going to take it seriously. I quit my job. I went to India. I joke I did the black girl version of eat, pray, love. <laughs> and what did you find? I mean, we're laughing now, but that's no laughing matter. Mm -hmm. Like to get to no. that point, to get to a point in your life where you feel like you have to take a dramatic pause. You have to leave all of the stressors that work in general and corporate life in general can bring, mm. but then the added things that come with stacked on microaggressions and maybe not so microaggressions, right? Yeah. I had to unplug all the way and go to India. What were you hoping you'd find in India? Why that move? I needed to find some peace. Mm. 
I was clearly not okay. I mean, I'll give you an example. I had a team, majority of white folks reporting to me, and they went to HR and said that I wasn't complimenting them enough. Okay. Mm. What white man receives that feedback? Right. And so I just was starting to question myself all the time. I was not okay. I was the opposite of grounded. I went to India because I was hoping to learn tools that would help me to feel better. And while I had taken yoga before, while I'd gone to meditation classes before, I usually had white instructors. And I love everybody, I love all people. And I've had some amazing yoga teachers in life, but I always felt like something was lost in translation. Mm. I felt like what I was being taught was, I don't know if I'd say watered down, I would just say different. And when I got to India, that's exactly what I found. I learned the original, the original poses and also the philosophy. I feel like through, you know, cultural misappropriation, perhaps some might call it in the US, what people call yoga here, the core of it has been stripped. If that makes sense here, it feels like it's exercise rather than kind of a spiritual modality almost. Exactly, exactly. I was going to ask you, actually, if you had had any spiritual practice in your life before you went mm. to India. So it was interesting that you said you had done yoga, you had done some meditative work, aside from feeling like you weren't completely connecting with mm -hmm. the teachers or the practice, that you felt that it was a little bit less than what it could be. What opened up for you in India? So it was the original, mm. but sometimes the original is, you know can be a little not great. Yeah. What was it for you that was like, oh, this is life-giving? Here's the thing. In the context of corporate America, we're busy. So I might go to a yoga class on Tuesday and Thursday morning, got that hour in, and then I'm like, go, 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 go. And whatever happened in the yoga studio stayed in the yoga studio. And then the rest of my day was filled with stress. What was amazing about my experience in India was to go full throttle, to go all in, to live a lifestyle where I am fully prioritizing my own self-care, for it to be a way of living versus an hour class. And so when I got back from India, what I realized was all of the practices that I learned, the breath work, the mindfulness, they were much more powerful outside of the yoga studio and in the context of everyday life. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm in a meeting and someone says something that really gets under my skin, right? It's in those moments where those breathing practices are much more effective. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was that shift from going to a class for an hour to, oh, I can incorporate all of these tools throughout my entire day, regardless of what I'm doing. It's almost like when I need the tool is when something's broken or breaking or on the verge, right? I have this thing exactly. in my toolbox to access. How long did you spend in India? I was there for a few months, okay. um, but I spent about two years traveling and learning, trying to learn tools that would help me to feel better. So I was with a shaman in Peru. I was traveling around the Southwest, getting exposed to Native American cultures. I was doing intensive training courses in the States, right? So it was about a two-year period of me really doing intensive training to learn tools. And my goal was not to teach. Mm. Even though I did do a yoga teacher training, that was not my intention. My goal was to 
figure out how to feel better, mm-hmm. how to not feel like this anymore. Because we were, you know, joking about how terrible it was. But the reality is I cried many tears. I was not a whole person. I felt broken at that moment that I quit and left. I realized by you saying your journey didn't start with you wanting to teach. It started with you wanting to heal, that you yes. could completely immerse yourself in the process and you weren't constantly going through every course and class and meeting with other experts and gurus and people who were wise for the sake of turning it into a product, a program, or a service, right? Exactly. You could completely abandon yourself to the process and then in retrospect, and we'll get to that part, then come up with, wait, I can take all I've learned and figure out how to help heal people who Mm. were just like me. Is that kind of how it happened? That's exactly it. I went in with the intention of trying to heal and also experiencing things without any judgment or objectives besides feel better. Mm. So I would try something and be like, oh, how do I feel now? Ooh, that was amazing. Oh, that thing, I didn't know about that. And kind of following my intuition to which practices and which tools really helped me. And so what I teach today are a collection of those tools that were powerful for my own individual healing journey. Yeah. Did you ever think you would go back to corporate America. I mean, you're not in it, but you're going back to it to help it. Well, the truth is I did go back. Oh, you did? (laughs) So I spent two years traveling and learning and, um, you know, trying to help myself feel better. I had never felt so good in my entire life. But the reality is finances are a thing that we can't get away from. Everyone has bills. You got to live. You got to eat. And so at a certain point, I got another corporate job. And it was there that I realized that the microaggressions still existed. And also that coincided with the summer of 2020, Mm. George Floyd, riots, a lot. You know, I was attacked by riot police for playing the violin in a park to honor the life of a man named Elijah McLean, who was a 23-year-old black man violinist who was walking home unarmed from the store. It's obvious what happened to him, but... We, a bunch of violinists, went to a park to honor his life, and the police came, right, with their tear gas and their weapons as I was sprinting away with my violin. I tell this story in my book, Black People Breathe. And so I found myself using those tools I learned in India to calm myself down when I was literally under attack. But also, I went to work that Monday morning, and, you know, a colleague said to me, When I see you, I don't see color. And I'm like, well, two days ago, the police saw color and they they used some weapons, right? And so these practices have been so powerful. So I did go back to corporate. That's where I experienced additional, I'll say, workplace trauma. And that's when I merged these things. That's when the aha moment Mm -hmm. of maybe I should teach this because I'd be in a meeting, someone would say something offensive and I'd reach into my toolkit from India and be like, oh, this breathing technique right now. They don't even have to know that I'm doing it and I can calm myself down and like get through this 
effectively without uh, snapping at anybody, still maintaining my personal brand, still being able to be focused and productive, even though somebody would have just said something that like really got under my skin. Was it at that moment that you said, I think I know how these two worlds can come together? Exactly. It was this aha moment. And I remember I woke up. It was like, I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you just wake up with an idea. And, you know, there's science behind that because your subconscious mind is still working as you are sleeping. In fact, you are most creative when you go into this state. And sometimes people call it the liminal state, but that state when you're half awake, half asleep. And in fact, I have some practices that I do and I offer that help you get there, like sound baths. But that's when the ahas come. And so, yes, one morning I woke up and I was like, this because I had other friends that were also black and also the only at their office, right? I went to Harvard Business School. Most of us yeah. <laughs> are the only in our office. Can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And they too were having the same issues that I was. And I was like, when somebody says this, do this breathing technique. When you feel this way, do this breathing technique. And that's when I was like, oh, maybe I have something here. So on the side, I started offering workshops to companies just to test it out a little bit to see, oh, is there interest here? You know, and also to see whether I enjoyed doing it. So I did a little bit of like side hustle situation, except to me, it wasn't a hustle. It was just my passion. Like I wasn't uh, trying to make money. And even now, like finances, I'm going to my Harvard Business School reunion soon. You know, it's Harvard Business School. I sold my last company for X billion dollars. And I just, that's not who I am, right? And perhaps I, I maybe never fit in there. But uh, yes, for me, it's about making a difference. I know yeah. that life is short. I've had so many friends die. People just keep dying younger and younger. And because of that, I want to make my time here worth it. I want to make sure that I'm using it to the, you know, exactly with intention. Yeah. I have to say something and I don't even know how it's going to come out, but you absolutely belonged at Harvard and you absolutely (laughs) belong here right now. And lucky them that they got you then and that they're going to get you at the reunion. And hopefully that your voice and the work that you're doing will make people go home and say, man, do I fit in there? All I have Mm. to show for it is a bunch of money, but what's my impact? What am I doing? Mm. How am I changing? How am I disrupting for good, not just disrupting for the sake of disrupting? So you are absolutely where you need to be. Thank you. You know, what you just said brought up um, something that we always used to talk about at HBS, Harvard Business School, which is the herd mentality, right? And so the herd mentality, that's that everybody, right? This is the popular job. This is what success equals. And I'll say that as I've gotten older, you know, I started out pursuing what everybody else wanted. Maybe not because I wanted it, but because that was success. And I think what I've learned now is that none of that matters. It's what I think. How I feel about what I'm doing, I have the power to define success for me. One of the coolest parts of my job is getting to hear from women who say things like what you just said, that Mm. as we age into ourselves, into who we were meant to be, who we were created Mm. to be, and how we were meant to show up and serve, it's this intersection of all of these years of experience, all of this pain, all of this confusion is finally matched with the person that I could have been and now Mm. am. 
And so when I hear women saying, I think it's over or I missed the boat, I'm like, no, this is exactly the time when these two things can be matched. And it's not always easy. You know, it's easy to hear someone else's story and someone will hear your story Mm -hmm. today and be inspired, but they won't know what that piece is for them. And so the more stories we tell, the more we hope that women can find themselves in these stories and create their own and and move away from the yeah. herd mentality. So thank you for saying yeah. that. Now, you you hinted at something that I want to get to, your book. Mm. Mm-hmm. How's that feel? Congratulations. Brand new book thank out. Thank you. That's awesome. Yes. I, I feel so um, blessed yeah. to have been given the opportunity to share these tools. My book is called Black People Breathe. Every chapter is something that happens to Black people, but also other people, people of color, women, LGBTQ, anybody that's been marginalized. So an example is I have a chapter called Countering Imposter Syndrome with Courage and Tools. And maybe the reason I doubt myself might be different than the reason you doubt yourself, right? So for example, I was given a fake promotion once Mm. (laughs) where my boss said, you're doing a great job. How about we change your title on LinkedIn and uh, tell everybody you have this title, but we won't make any changes in the system and we won't pay you, right? So that causes me to doubt myself. And I share tools that everyone can use to boost your confidence. Um, Other chapters, we talked about your name earlier, Netta. Yeah. So I have a chapter called That's Not My Name. Uh. I don't know how often you've had to correct people um, just by the pronunciation, but also how much do people try to get it right or not try? And so those situations where people get your name wrong because they're just not trying to pronounce it, or for Black people, we often get called the name of the other Black person, even though we look nothing alike, right? So, you know, those are some examples. I have a chapter called R-E-S-P-E-C-T at work, where I discuss microaggressions. And in all these chapters, I share experiences that I had personally, and then mindfulness and breathwork practices that were really powerful for me in those specific situations. Thank you for spelling that out because you're right. This could be helpful for people outside of the Black community that what you're offering Mm. is a tool for so many. I have two dear friends. They're kind of in my mom's group of my youngest child and they're, they're both Asian and they get confused for each other all the time. And it's, it's Mm. become a joke amongst our friend Mm. group on their birthdays. We say happy birthday to the wrong one. And it's kind of funny, but you know, there has to be at some level this like, do you see me for me or do I just represent the Asian box? There's an Asian woman Mm. over there. She must be X. Yeah. And, you know, we all desperately want to be seen and heard. Mm. And so this is a form of not seeing and hearing and not trying, as you said earlier, like, I'm not worth you trying to get this right. Mm -hmm. So this book clearly has so much for many of us. Now, many times when experts like yourself, specialists go out and write a book, Back in the day, it used to be the only way we could get our message out. But now we have social media. Mm. You have this website full of all these robust sort of offerings. You have an online course. You have, you know, the blog, all kinds of resources, in addition to people being able to work with you individually or bring you into their company. Why was the book important? What was it about the book that 
was going to separate your work or make it more scalable or, or whatever. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, when I first started this work, as in professionally, like for my job versus I'll say more hobby and interest, most of the work that I was doing, and even still, is with companies. So B2B, right? Um, this book was really powerful in me speaking to individuals mm. directly and also being able to get a bit more personal. If most of the workshops that I was offering were how to be more effective in the workplace, here's the thing. We all go to work. But we also have things that happen outside of work. And I could share those stories and offer tools that people can use. Here's an example. I have a chapter called Shopping While Black. And in that, I share a story of when I went to the grocery store and a grocery store employee called the police and said that I stole deli meat. Now, here's the thing. I am a vegan. So the police spent hours and hours searching every crevice of my car, searching for this mystery meat. And I was moving and I was camping and my car was packed. So all of my belongings, clothes and everything, all over the parking lot floor, right? Now here's the thing. Black people get murdered by the police unarmed. I needed to make sure that there was no reason for these policemen to physically harm me. And I used my breathing practices in that situation. The workshops I was teaching in the workplace at corporate, I can't really talk about those, right? Because it's about being better at work. And so this gave me the opportunity to share all of me and all of my experiences with folks that also experience similar wow. challenges. That's intense. It's hard to skip through that and go to the next question because I just want to sit with that for a minute. How do you have the, the sense to even pause and say, this is an opportunity for breath work. This is an opportunity to go back to my mindfulness practices. How do you not let your rage and your, your disappointment in humanity, like, mm. and obviously it's because you spent all this time studying this, but yeah, I feel it. I'm just hearing the story. How yeah. do you exchange one for the other? In answer to your question, I want to share the definition of mindfulness. And there are many different definitions, but I'll share with you mine, which is focusing your attention on the present moment right now without judgment and with curiosity. So what do I mean? People think that mindfulness is meditating at an ashram. Yes. And... Just the simple act of paying attention is mindfulness. And so in those moments when hard things happen, right, paying attention to notice, I am experiencing rage. I am experiencing fear. And just by naming it can be so powerful. That's how. Just the noticing. And mindfulness is a practice. And by mindfulness, I just mean paying attention and being able to say, I'm experiencing whatever I'm experiencing. Um, and in fact, I share a framework in Black People Breathe called RAIN. R is for recognize. That's that first step that I just said. Name the emotion. Recognize mm -hmm. how you're feeling. A is for allow. Allow it to be there. It's okay. Give yourself permission to feel that way. We often feel guilty or don't let ourselves, right? But it's important. 
The I is for investigate. Investigate, well, what does this feeling feel like and where am I feeling it in the body? Is it tightness in the chest? Is it you know a sharp pain in my belly? And just noticing these things are helpful in the release. And the N in RAIN is for nurture. What can I do to feel better? And yes, in the moment facing the police or in the moment at work, you can't do that in the moment. All you can do is maybe do a breathing practice that I'll share with you. But afterwards, it's so important to do the nurture, to take care of ourselves because otherwise we'll get sick. You know, chronic stress results in high blood pressure, weakened immune system, diabetes, all sorts of things. Yes. Well, my hat's off to you for not just being able to embody this practice for your own sake, but then really recognizing that what you learned and you teaching it is going to give access to so many people, not only to have better health and to move away from stress, but again, to heal themselves. And again, what you're doing right now, informing all of us, making us all aware of all that you carry and hold. And then hopefully mm. we can we can be invited into that space to to better understand. Okay, so we talked about the the book being a, a little bit more of a to the individual, right? Less of a B two B practice, but you have an online course. Is that for yes. an individual? Yes. It's called Breathing Through Microaggressions and Racism. It's a self-paced online course where every module, 10 modules, every module is an emotion because things happen and then it's okay, identify how I'm feeling. Am I angry? Am I experiencing anxiety? Am I sad? And so I share tools on how to deal with the different emotions that you might experience as a result of microaggressions and racism. And then also I will have four live monthly workshops where we'll actually talk about it. People have opportunities to ask questions. We'll practice stuff together. Um, But, you know, those four are stress management and self-care, surviving and thriving at work, managing self-doubt, and breathing through hard times, things that we deal with, all of those in our daily lives. That's awesome that you're offering that. And is that appropriate for somebody who's not Black or Brown to not take that course I would say that this course is very much targeted and tailored towards the black and brown experience. Awesome. And so, yes, an ally could take it. And perhaps an ally might experience what we experience all the time, which is, wow, this wasn't made for me. I'm here anyway, and I can learn some stuff, but it's clear that they didn't have me in mind when they Mm. made this. And perhaps that too could be an experience to build empathy. Yeah, that's so right. Well, I asked that question because I want to honor that not every space is for everybody. We have a podcast for women 40 plus. If you're a man (laughs) or a woman under uh, 40, you're welcome to listen. We hope you learn something, but it's intended to be very specifically for this group of women. Yes. Let's go back to, you go to India, you go back to uh, corporate America, you're faced with these Mm -hmm. microaggressions again. George Floyd happens, a lot of people in the DEI community emerged Mm. in that season. Mm. This is true. I saw people that I know myself and small businesses who were like, we want to get this right. So they were starting to hire DEI coaches. It was this gold rush of uh, Mm -hmm. how do we educate ourselves and gold rush of people who really felt like they had value to offer Mm. and a way to serve. You 
kind of turned this a little bit and said, I'm not going to offer DEI to those who necessarily don't understand and need to understand. I am going to go serve the people who are being impacted and affected negatively by all of this. When you then go back to a corporation, so you package all things Z Clark, you say, this is what I'm going to offer you, corporation A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. How do they respond to that? Because I'm assuming they're like, well, we have a budget and that budget mm-hmm. we're going to spend on DEI. And you're like, well, hold yeah. up. You've got to nurture the people in here that have been impacted by not just what happened with George Floyd, but all yeah. the things that were happening before. How did you convince them or did you have to convince them to hire you? It depends on who I was talking to. So when I speak to the uh, leaders of the Black employee resource groups, for example, they know that they have the pain, right? They know that they experience microaggressions. They know that they have chronic stress. They know that they have this problem and are desperately seeking tools. Not a hard sell at all to them. But let's talk about DEI, again, depends on who is working in DEI. I have often found that when I talk to allies or aspiring allies, right, that have DEI positions, they look at me when I share my experience and they basically imply our Black people are fine. They're like, but I'll introduce you to the ERG, Employee Resource Group. But then I talk to the ERG and they're like, we're miserable. It's terrible. We're not getting paid. If you look at the organization, like there are barely any of us at senior levels. We're all stuck in the call center or more junior levels, right? And so there is a disconnect because often in DEI, here are the priorities. One, implicit bias training, of which, as you said, a lot popped up during COVID, but, you know, not, you know, not just COVID, but after George Floyd. And then secondly, talent acquisition. We're doing our job, we're successful if we have brought in this amount of black and brown folks. What they do not incorporate into their goals often is how are those black and brown folks doing? Where are they in the organization? If you look at the employee satisfaction rates, and most people do surveys, right, employee surveys, and the black and brown folks are the least satisfied, and those numbers don't change, but that's not in anybody's goal, so guess what? The numbers continue to not change. And so I find that when I talk to the people that experience the challenges directly, no question. It's an easy conversation. When I talk to those that have never experienced it, who still have senior titles in DEI, they might look at me and say, thanks, but no thanks. And then here's also an interesting challenge. Let's say that you have a black person, and often it's black women that are in these roles of, you know, we now have a chief diversity officer and we're hiring a black woman, which is great. I'm I'm not, you know, yes, yes, for more black women having any chief anything roles, but are they empowered? Okay. Mm -hmm. I know a chief diversity officer. She lasted almost a year. She left because they didn't give her resources, they didn't give her a team, they didn't give her a budget. So didn't really matter what she wanted to do because she still has a white male boss who doesn't think we have a problem and perhaps DEI is for branding and optics. Yeah, he solved the problem by hiring her. So what's the problem? There you go. So you would say that depending on who you spoke to, they saw the need and they then brought you in. Exactly. 
Now that you're collecting data, Mm. right? You've done this more than once. Yeah, (laughs) way more. You're going into companies, you're hearing people who see the need for what Mm -hmm. you're doing and are then transformed by it. Does that sort of data collection help you then go to the next company and say, I know you don't think this is needed. You think your black and brown folks are fine. Yeah. But let me just show you what it's like at company A, B, and C that I've been at already. Can they then hear you? Are you seeing people sort of become more open to this dialogue, like bringing this into a company, or are they afraid like you're about to come in here and ruffle some feathers and no thank you? It depends on the organization. I mean, honestly, everybody's different. I will say that some organizations are more willing and open to try new things. I'd say others, you know, your annual budget planning happens when it happens, and then it's very fixed, and it's focused on these target initiatives, as I just mentioned, especially in DEI, talent acquisition and implicit bias training, and celebrate Black History Month, and now Juneteenth, and we're done. Like, that's the list. So it really depends. I'd say um, I have been most successful when black and brown employees have spoken up and asked their leaders for the work that I do, Mm. asked to bring me in. I'll also say that sometimes people will bring me in to talk to the entire organization. You know, it's much easier to get traction there. You know, you meet people where they are. Where are they? DEI equals bring in a Black History Month speaker and have a Black History Month programming and Juneteenth programming. So meet people where they are. I'll go there. And then my workshops and what I teach have dual purposes. I adjust a little bit, right? So that the goals are one, to educate allies on the realities in this country, and two, to empower everyone with the breathing tools for anxiety, for anger, for focus, for productivity, all the things I teach. I just broaden it a little bit. So I'd say for those companies that are less ready, I'll say, to to help their black and brown employees through investing in them, those then perhaps they're more open to, we'll bring Z Clark in for Black History Month. We'll bring Z Clark in for Juneteenth, which feels a little bit like check the box. Yeah. But you meet people where they are, and the more people are exposed, the more willing those allies that are ready to speak up will do so. And taking advantage of the opportunities, because at the end of the day, if that's the exposure you get to the people that really need you, you'll take it, right? Exactly. Even if it flies in the face of the things that we know we should be doing better. Mm, Yes. But we got to start somewhere, I guess. Okay. Thank you for telling us all of that. I just want to to go back through that because I'm aware that we have so many people listening who don't come with your particular knowledge, who don't have your background. But I think what's so helpful about your story is that people can fill in their own blanks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Z had an experience, a negative one. She had a positive experience. She found a way to go back to her negative experience, find other people like her who might be feeling the same way and teach what she learned from the positive experience. And so if we Mm -hmm. fill in those blanks, if we sort of are doing it as a mad lib, like what is this thing that you learned and what is this thing that you have to offer and this population that you can serve, it helps us to see how we can do that. And then you've been Mm -hmm. really great about sharing kind of your programming. There's a B2B offering. My business is going to another business 
and they're hiring me as an expert, as a specialist. There's, you know, a B2C opportunity. I, as a specialist, am teaching individuals. And then you have this workshop that's also B2C where people can come and engage with you online. So it's a great way for us to sort of imagine ourselves as we think about building something. And then obviously the book, Becoming an Author, which mm. we did a story with a first-time author. And I was telling her, I think the statistic for women over 40 is like 70% of us think we have a book inside of us. So we got to <laughs> get more of those stories out. Yes. I asked you about the tools that you have on the site, the blog, everything mm you know, specifically created for a black and brown user. Mm -hmm. But I myself, and I always am a little unsure where I fit in because I've had experiences where I've been othered, but I pass as like a question mark. I have racial camouflage, mm. as I say. No one really knows where <laughs> I'm from, which is its own offensive thing. But I don't pretend that I have had to endure the same things. Mm. But I, in going through your work, it's just enlightening, right? It's just things we should all know. And so I want to encourage our listeners to do that. But my question for you is, it's an incidental part of your work, but is that going mm. to be something that you ever do or want to do or care about doing, which is to educate people outside of the community about the community and ways that they can Hmm. And it's a tricky question. And during George Floyd, we learned a lot about what a tricky question that was, like having people really in earnest going and doing their own homework and learning more mm. and stop taxing people who've been through it by having them re-go through it, reiterate that history for your sake, like do the work. Mm. So I'm sensitive in asking the question, but I'm also curious about what is going to be in the Z Clark world of all the things that she offers and the ways that she brings her kind of knowledge into the world? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I'd like to say is you are right, that the tools that I share can be used by all people. People ask me, well, I'm not black. Can I read your book, Black People Breathe? And I say, yes, because you'll get two big things out of it. One, an education. Mm. You'll have a real life glimpse into what it's like to be a black person in America. And you'll read about all the things that have happened to me. And I could be your classmate, colleague, neighbor. And a lot of people have said to me, well, that would never happen to a black person like you. And what they don't realize is that Harvard is not written on my forehead when I walk into a grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. So one, education. Two, the breathing tools, right? Everyone experiences challenging emotions, fear, anxiety, uh, exhaustion, and these tools can be just as powerful. Now, you asked me, well, in the future, am I going to shift to sharing or being more of an educator to broader populations? And I'll say this, there are many, many, many people whose entire mm -hmm. focus of their world is to uh, teach white people to be less racist. Yeah. Okay. It's a whole field, right? That's kind of what DE&I consultants do today. They exist. And so what I'll say is, I do not believe, I mean, you can never, you never know of what's going to happen <laughs> in the future, but 
For me, where I choose to spend my time, I prefer to help black and brown folks directly with the tools because there's only mm-hmm. one of me. I mean, granted, I have a team, but like there's only so much that I as an individual can do. I also want to be conscientious of my own mental health and uh, putting myself in situations. So for example, early on when I started this business, Uh, people would say, hey, can allies go to your microaggressions workshop, okay? So then I'd have a speckle of interested um, white people coming to my mindfulness to heal from microaggressions Mm -hmm. (laughs) workshop. And you know what those white people did? Give me terrible survey feedback, say I didn't pay attention to them, that I didn't think about them, that I didn't, you know, and it's like, well, this wasn't for you. And so, yes, I think it's important that there are tools and training for all people, especially those of a lighter complexion that do not understand my day to day. I think it's very important. But do I personally want to be that person? I'll say no. Um, what I am happy to do is share my personal experiences with folks. And I do that at the Black History Month talks. I do that at the Juneteenth talks. I write content. You do that in the book. Yes, exactly. But do I want to sit and spend my time? I have done that already in my life unpaid <laughs> and I'm exhausted. Okay, two things. Congratulations on saying no and not going along with the herd mentality of what everybody (laughs) thinks could be next for Z. That's awesome. But the other thing is I want our listener to hear your no. I want people to hear like, it's good to find our niche, stay in our lane, do what we do really, really well, and not try and please all people. It helps us to not water down the work that we're doing. So thank you for that answer. You Mm. both gave a great answer, but you also taught us in, in the process. And I appreciate that. I think there are a lot of women, as we talked about kind of at the front, that you know we're about bringing this 40-plus woman into the podcast to listen. But I think there are a lot of them that are listening. I've heard from a lot of them who don't believe that there's something that they have to offer. They feel that perhaps, you know, it's a little too late to get started. Mm. What do you want to say to her? What would you say to her, uh, given your own story, about starting something at this age, in this stage? We as human beings are living longer. You could be 40 or 50 and have multiple decades left in your life. So what are you going to do with this one and only precious life? And I'll say I invite everyone to dream. I teach a workshop called Envisioning My Future, Reaching for the Stars at Companies. And so here is the framework that I share. One, it's DVG. Okay, I'm all about acronyms. I've worked in consulting. (laughs) Consulting for too long, DVG. Dream without constraints. Just take five minutes and just make a list of 10 things that would blow your mind in a good way if they happened. Just write them all down. Okay, the V in DVG is visualize. There is such a power in visualization. You see, our brains have something called the RAS, reticular activating system. That is the part of the brain that says important, not important, important, not important. If you visualize, you just, it, the thing will come true because your, your subconscious is searching for the things. Also, visualization, there is a lot of research that shows for Olympic athletes when they visualize 
prioritize their performance in an event versus when they actually do it. It stimulates the same regions in the brain. So sit there and visualize the thing that you want to happen. The G is goal set, okay? Because while I am of the woo-woo, because I did go to India and I operate in those worlds, I also went to Harvard Business School. So what does that mean? Goal set, what's your five-year stretch goal? Like on the thing that you've dreamt about without constraints. Then what's your two-year milestone goal? What's something that's like, oh, that signifies that I made progress towards that. And here's the real one, the real, real one-year attainable goal. What can I do in the next year realistically with my full-time job and my kids and everything and set that and track yourself? That's what I'd say. Hold yourself accountable. Thank you for the most comprehensive answer that we've ever had to that question about women 40 plus. But before we let you go, we have something called our fast five. Share a daily practice that keeps you grounded. Box breathing. You inhale for four, hold your breath for four, exhale for four, hold for four, box breathing, Google it. I have guided practices. Do that every morning. Awesome. That's a good one. And what are you currently reading besides your own book? <laughs> we'll have that in the show notes. <laughs> I am rereading The Four Agreements mm, by Don yes. Miguel Ruiz because those agreements, especially the one that has been the biggest one that I need to learn and relearn is don't take anything personally. I think Oprah was the first time I picked that book up when she mentioned it. And then what is something that you would say is your favorite thing about this particular age right now? Freedom. freedom. The freedom to choose and not be worried about what other people think. Yeah. Amen. And what would you go back and say to 25-year-old Z, who was probably, I don't know, maybe she was at Harvard Business School at the time. Maybe she had her first gig. But what would you say to her about midlife? Stop worrying about the future. <laughs> don't put so much pressure on every single decision and pivot. It's all going to work out. Yeah. It's so true. I have a 20-year-old as of yesterday. She's 20. And man, oh. that's the best advice you can give. And um, our last question, Z, you've kind of taken your life experience and um, poured it into other people for the sake of healing, for the sake of transformation. How would you say that work has liberated you? It's been a shift from life happening to me to empowerment and knowing that I have the power to create my own reality. Mm. What a great answer. I'm so glad that you figured it out. And I'm so glad that you're helping so many people to find healing and that you took your own experience to do that. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. I so appreciate you. Thank you. So happy to be here. And Liberty listeners, thanks for hanging out with Z and with me. We'll have all the things she mentioned in the show notes, her book, of course, and her website, but in addition, the other things that she mentioned about box breathing and the four agreements. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcast and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to move into your middle third with intention. Liberty Road is created by executive producer Netta Jones, supervising producer Elizabeth Windham, producer Julia Windham, and music by Jack Jones. Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.